Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Parlor, a podcast featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. Today, Brandon Jenkins, Lindsay Hollubeck, Jake Faust, and myself are joined by Professor Casey Boyle of the Rhetoric and Writing Department at the University of Texas at Austin. We're here to ask him about his chapter in the essay collection, Kenneth Burke and the Posthuman, entitled A Sustainable Dystopia. We hope to gain some insight into posthumanism, humanism, and dystopia while analyzing different sections of Boyle's article. Hello, Professor Boyle. I'm Brandon Jenkins. Hi, Brandon. I'm Lindsay Hollybeck. Hi, Lindsay. I'm Hannah Ortega. Hi, Hannah. And I'm Jake Faust. Hey, Jake. So, Casey, we are excited to have you on today to join us. Um, Professor Boyle is the Associate Professor in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin and Director of the Digital Writing and Research Lab, where he researches and teaches digital rhetoric, media studies, and rhetorical history. He earned a BA at the University of Texas and an MA at the University of North Texas and a PhD at the University of South Carolina. His work has appeared in many different texts and essay collections, and today we are focusing on the chapter entitled A Sustainable Dystopia in the 2017 essay in the collection of Kenneth Berg and the Posthuman. Professor Boyle, I would first like to thank you for taking the time and for joining us today to help us out with this project. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. Can you tell us why you got interested in philosophical concepts like posthumanism and where this research has taken you since coming to the University of Texas? That's a good question. Thank you. I think I was interested in the sort of philosophical or conceptual angle for a lot of these kinds of scholars' concerns, especially in posthumanism, mainly because of media and how we relate to media, communication media. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas back in the early 90s, or at least mid-90s, that was about when like the internet started becoming a more of a common place thing for everybody, right? Emails had just started to be issued to all students. And at the time, internet was still dial up and stuff. But even in my short time, when I was an undergraduate, just like you all, from the time I started to the time I ended, it seemed like our entire communication media had changed. And to a certain extent, even our own kind of human experience of what it means to be a human change. You went from, you know, maybe seeing everybody that you worked with or lived with or lived around all the time to being able to contact people in a sort of very informal way through instant messaging or emails or that sort of thing. And to me, even that early, that remarked or that, that showed to me like there was a fundamental change in what it meant to be a human and in a community. Right? And I thought it was more than just a simple thing of speeding communication up. I knew it had something more to do with how we experience our reality even. If we could just instant message someone from across the globe. Um, not just call them, but send them a text or later send them images or that sort of thing. And in the you know, 25 years since, it has obviously exploded. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of kinds of other media and communication media that is produced not only just for us, but for our possessions. My car has some sort of computer in it that transmits data to an insurance company that then adjusts my rates depending on whether or not I drive well or drive poorly. That's communication that I help create, but I never read or intend to send. It just happens. And yet my life is still kind of like shaped by some of those communication things. It's not just simple media and sending and receiving messages, but it's something a little bit more encompassing and enveloping in, in how I go about my life and others as well. 
And so I think that's kind of what started it for me, thinking philosophically and conceptually about how communication happens, not just what's on the page or what's being said, but how it's being said, who are grouped into those messages, that kind of infrastructure that's wider, who's participating in it, what is participating in it. These are questions that can't be answered simply, I don't think. And so in, in your term of philosophically, I think it requires that kind of thought process to think wholly about these media changes that we're all experiencing. Jumping right into the main concepts of the article, the term humanism and posthumanism come up several times. Um, can you define humanism and posthumanism with common language? Yes, I can. I can do so badly. Simply, one of the things about humanism and one of the strains of humanism that I try to identify as a target to respond to is the notion of the human as a rational, self-conscious subject who can then uh, determine their own political or economic will in the world. This is a notion of humanism. And again, I'm being very broad strokey here. This is a notion of what the human is that was defined in basically Western Europe at early modern period, if not a little bit before. And these notions were very privileged to certain subject positions. This was the more or less white male in the Western world who could write political treatises and vote. And those are the people who had access to certain voting rights, certain rights of existing and that sort of thing. Obviously that notion of humanism is, is good, right? And it's as history has progressed, more people get included into what counts as the human. Women get able to vote and hold political offices. People who are not white get to be able to vote, hold political offices, and have rights just as much as, as, as what might have been the original starting point, right? But, but even then, you still have that sort of center, that which everyone else is different from. And then what happens when you have someone who, who can't think consciously about all of their activities in the world? Just to kind of give you an example, someone who's autistic and doesn't fit that exact mold, who, who might not be able to communicate with language the way that all of us on this call can. So are they actually human or are they somehow deficiently human? That's where it starts to like wear that the idea of humanism as a target, as me to respond to, starts to wear down a little bit. And our idea of human gets built up into even our built environments. So for instance, the University of Texas, um, this is a huge university and what was built primarily, it's built for, you know, probably in the late 19th century, white men who are going to study college, right? Mm -hmm. This was built for a very able-bodied white men student where you have 40 acres, uh, you know, spread out. There's all these steps. It assumes and requires a, a certain kind of body to be able to go across even in a open university. And, and later on, we, we start changing this and, and adding ramps and, and maybe adding shortcuts, that sort of thing. But the notion of who is human and who gets to count as human gets built in not only into the ideas of who gets let in, but also who can operate there as well. Now, switching over to the post-human idea for a second, I'm going to refer to uh, Catherine Hales, who wrote a great book called How He Became Post-Human. And this came out in, like I think, 1999. So this topic has been around for a long time. This is not new by any means whatsoever. She has this quote, and I'm going to badly say it here. It's more or less about, in terms of like the human being, there's nothing cognitively that makes us smarter now than 10,000 years ago. You take a human from 10,000 years ago and now, there's nothing really cognitively different about those two humans. But somehow we are smarter, right? We want to believe that. But Catherine Hill says the only thing that makes us smarter isn't the human itself, but it's the rooms we inhabit. It's the ways in which we can offload our cognitive or our thinking processes and not worry about certain things. The fact that I have a refrigerator five feet to me 
I can store food and not have to worry about going every day and spending a third of my day procuring food to eat that day. I can store some stuff. I can put some stuff in the freezer. I can go shopping once a week in normal time. I can do that sort of thing and just take my activities and start concentrating on other things, maybe more philosophical or conceptual or whatever. For Catherine Hales, that definition of the smarter human is the smarter room starts to like think about, well, maybe it wasn't the, the self-conscious thinking human subject that was the unit of analysis. Maybe we should think more about how that human exists in an environment. What helps that human think about certain things? What prevents them from thinking about certain things? We can refer, when we get to the article itself, um, one of the examples I give is the next door example. People who are easily uploading implicitly biased comments towards uh, people in their neighborhood and how the, uh, instead of just allowing that to happen, that the company used the interface to create friction to make people slow down a little bit and not instantly put up some implicitly biased, suspicious reports. This is and it isn't uh, human and post-humanistic, right? It's understanding that the interface itself helps uh, accelerate certain kinds of behaviors and thoughts, but it also might help dampen some as well, right? And so taking a post-humanist sort of orientation is understanding that the human being who are, who's a user or whatever, isn't always going to be like able to be consciously aware of everything they choose. And sometimes that the environment or be it that a digital interface or architectural space or even social or cultural practices that has to help the human think differently or better or, or more fair. So big, big picture here is the human badly defined in a humanist mindset is this individual who can rationally think and choose how they want to be in the world. Sort of post-humanistic orientation the human is already like a network of things that includes the individual body and thinking process, but also other things as well. Uh, how we communicate, which medium we, we communicate through, and, and understanding that that's all a negotiation rather than just a simple choice and using a tool. Thank you for defining those for us. Um, so a few people in our class were unsure about the argument of your paper. <laughs> okay. Now that we have some term definitions, can you tell us what the general thesis is and explain how that relates to post-humanism, technology, and rhetoric? Yeah. One of the things about this particular essay is that when you publish an article in a collection like this, it's all grouped around and themed around a certain response. So everybody in the essay is using this post-humanist, and there's a bunch of various uh, strains of, of post-humanism to go on, but everyone in that collection is using some sort of post-humanist theory to, uh, to read or to analyze Kenneth Burke's writing. And Kenneth Burke was like anything, if not like a, like a staunch humanist, or at least we can, we can read him as someone who was very much invested in a traditional notion of the rational human being speaking. And so all of the essays in that collection are doing a kind of task that is set up by the introduction. And then we're all doing something, you know, kind of off of that theme. Burke has this essay called Definitions of Man, where he goes and he gives five definitions. Every section is a proposition for how a man is defined. And a man here, again, you know, we're, we're already in the sort of critique of humanism here because he's saying man, but he means mankind. He means women too, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's kind of hard to see past that, right? When we just see the definition of man, right? We get this. Um, but that aside, what we're doing there is taking each of those definitions and each of the sections of the essay starts off with basically one of his definitions of man. 
and we take it and we basically invert it and we and we say well this is what the posthuman is and can be and do here's what the posthuman can be and do right so if you go back through the essay and read every single um like the first paragraph of every one of those sections in the essay that's referring back to uh, Burke's essay of five definitions of man. Later on in his career, he comes back in and adds a sixth definition that we get to in the conclusion. Um, we talk about that. But the whole point of that essay was two, actually. One was trying to use Burke to argue against Burke, right? Or to invert him or do something different with him using his own words. And second was advocating for what we call the idea of friction in learning or in, in being. Because a lot of the things that we see with technology, for instance, is, uh, and this is a little bit more implicit, so it's, it's probably our bad that we didn't have this more explicitly in that essay, but most technology is intuitive, and you don't have to think about it. You can just use it, right? For instance, I have two kids, and my first one was born in 2008. It was like a year after the iPhone came out, and then by like 2009 or 2010, he was already getting on, in my phone and going to YouTube. I was like, oh my God, he's brilliant, blah, 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 but then what I realized wasn't that he was brilliant, but my machine is really dumb and supposed to be. It's supposed to be intuitive. You can just use it, simple gestures, and it's supposed to become a part of you, like something you don't even think about. Throughout the essays is all about trying to add in friction to make things happen. And so we find a bunch of different sources that also have advocated for these kinds of attitudes too, to architecture, to philosophical thought, that sort of thing. Like how do you add in friction and what does friction do for you? And this is also in terms of learning too. Uh, we, we think of learning as like this easy content delivery. It's like we, when we read, we just want to easily get the information. We don't want to have to think about how we get it or work very hard for it. But uh, at least in that essay, our thought was, no, friction is what makes it all happen. If you're working out, for instance, in a gym or running or something, right? You, you don't get to just go and, and run 10 miles. You have to like work your way up. And in the process of working your way up, your muscles are breaking down and they regenerate. They, they rebuild stronger, right? there's a lot of friction that's involved in there. And so that's what we wanted to talk about a little bit was to like kind of take an artistic way into talking about the benefits of friction in technology design, in communication, in thought, in pedagogy. Thank you so much for that. Um, so since you work on digital rhetoric and you teach students various digital literacies like podcasting, for example, can you tell us how you view technology through a post-humanist lens? That's a tough one. That's a good question though. <laughs> I think one of the ways I view technology through a posthumanist lens, and I try to do in my classes, working through multiple different digital media, is to think about the idea of form and content. So for instance, one of the traditional assignments was the remediation assignment, was to take an essay and then turn it into a podcast, or take an essay and turn it into a video essay. And that assumed that you had the same exact content, but you were just putting it under a new form. One thing I noticed really early on is that the form itself helps determine the content. It's not two separate things. If you look at them as continuous, that's the same thing, then, then it becomes a little bit more, more tricky, right? In a humanist viewpoint, we could say, hey, this is what I want to say. This is my thought. I'm just going to put it in this container or this container or this container. Certain things will fit, certain things won't fit, but whatever. They'll get the gist of what I'm saying. But in a sort of post-humanist frame, doing those processes teaches the fact that no, what you're trying to say is dependent on the technology itself from the beginning. It's not just something you throw into a, a slide deck or a podcast or whatever. You could easily just read your paper onto an audio file and just call it a podcast, but there's significant differences you might not even realize, right? 
So for instance, um, we want to think of text as just text and it's not multimedia. Well, it's, it's media, right? It's a visual medium. You can't read a printed text if you have your eyes closed, for instance, right? And so it's already visual. There's not like one big lesson that comes out of this, but what I'd hope to have in my classes and in my assignments is a sort of attunement or developing a sense of how different media shape how you think, not just what you want to say and how you're going to say it, but it shapes how you think as well. Philosophical thought developed from having to write really long books, right? And different kinds of philosophical thought are, are happening with different kinds of films, for instance, different kinds of audio productions, plays. I mean, these do different things. They don't just deliver information. They inform it. They help make it happen and, and make it what it is. And so that's one of the things I try to uh, teach primarily is that we're not separate from the media that we try to talk through. The media that we try to talk through helps inform what we want to say in the beginning. That definitely makes more sense now. So in your article, you mentioned this idea of dystopia. Could you tell us more about that idea and its three types and maybe define them as well? Yeah. So in the article, uh, we, we make a play on words. One traditional concept in rhetoric is a topoi. Now, it has a lot of different variants in rhetoric. And it's kind of funny because topoi, uh, as the idea of topic, historically and traditionally in rhetoric, uh, something really difficult to define. <laughs> it's, uh, um, and it's always medium-based. If you look back in the early text by Aristotle or even Cicero later on, topoi was more or less how you organized your notebooks, how you took notes. So he's got this entire passage or book on the topoi, and it's all about like, how do you make the right headings for the, all the notes that you're going to include in your notebook as you're gathering information, right? This is very dependent on the medium that you have available to you. Later, topoi is also like a procedure through which you develop arguments. So you say, here's an idea. I want to talk about parking on campus. And I'm going to run this through this procedure of general or particular. Do I want to argue the general or the particular case? That sort of thing, right? And so topoi means a couple different things. It could be a, a procedure or it could mean like some definite place where you put topics or that develop into a topic, right? On, on a page in the notebook. For this topoi, um, we were making a play on words, obviously. Um, and if a topoi is what brings people together onto a certain topic or helps you define something and, and, and localize a matter of concern, this topoi would like displace you and make you do something else or make you do it slower or something. And the idea we came up with was I initially had the idea through those apps that would take away a letter when you're typing. Through these constraints, you would have to come up with words that didn't have, like, let's say, an E or an S. So you had to write whatever you wanted to write without the letter S. And the keyboard worked that way. And I was talking to Stephen, and he was also developing these, like, these two keyboards. There was one keyboard he developed. He glued screws to all the, the, the keys. And so like when you wanted to type, it would like just kind of like prick you a little bit, not like break your skin, but couldn't like type like you normally do. You had to go slow. And so by doing that, it slows down what you're going to write. And it also changes how you're going to write it, which is a very Kenneth Burke kind of idea. One of the things that he always said early on was that language is like a selection and a deflection of reality. So by selecting certain things, you're necessarily deflecting other things. So let's say you're going to write like a 500 word burst of whatever. But if these screws are hitting you, you're going to be like, well, maybe not 500 words. Maybe I'll do 10. You know, it's an embodied sort of lesson in how media changes your thought processes. And so Topoi usually has like in the, in the procedure version of it, they have like different words for certain ones. You know, like I said, general, particular, um, there's a few other ones as well, but we decided to come up with some words for certain ones. Reluctance, resistance, and reticence. Each of those words basically tell what that one keyboard does. 
So one makes you reluctant to type more, right? And the other one was using resistance bands. We had like this bar that was above the keyboard. We put the rubber bands in there and you put your, your fingers in each of the rubber bands and have to like click it, right? And then Reticence was one that we actually designed together. It was a Arduino, which is a physical computing thing. We programmed basically in between, between the keyboard and the computer, a delay module that would alternatively delay your typing. So like as you're typing, you, you kind of like, as you look at the words, as you're typing, you expect instant feedback, right? You expect like, if I hit the H button, the H is going to come up on the screen. We, we wanted to play with that, that interchange between the keyboard and our fingers and the screen by creating a program that would go through a al different algorithm and change up either speed up or slow down or delay when the text came up on your screen. And so that way, if you're typing a bunch, sometimes it got really frustrating when it would like take 45 seconds for whatever you type appear on the screen. So you'd wait, you never knew how long because it would always change. So but those are the different things we wanted to do. And again, like the whole point uh, for the essay anyways, was to show the benefits of friction on how we think about our media. They're not merely tools that we use to get something done, but they're also uh, environments in which we think what we think. We started looking at how other people are using friction to make things happen. I mentioned earlier about the Nextdoor app. I'm not sure if you all are familiar with Nextdoor, but this is basically a spatially based neighborhood social network. You have to live in the neighborhood to be on that network. So think about it like Facebook for physical neighborhoods. In a lot of these predominantly white neighborhoods, anybody of color walking down the street would get like a suspicious person report on uh, next, next door, right? For nothing other than they weren't white and they were just walking down the street. The reason why that was is because it was so easy just to post and say, hey, this person's suspicious, blah, 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 right? And so what Nextdoor thought about, and they looked at this and they went against what are typical and traditional digital design and interface design principles of making things easy, frictionless, just one or two steps, right? And what they decided to do was like, if you're going to post about suspicious characters, we want you to focus on these things. What are they doing? How are they acting? Not were they wearing or what they look like. Just because someone wears something or looks like something doesn't mean they're suspicious, right? And so they went against and they created friction to focus people in on what makes people suspicious rather than allowing people just to like be implicitly biased against certain people. And so seeing things like that, we, we both thought was really important to, to talk about in, in our writing because we always talk about writing as it's gotta be easy to read. Make it easy for your reader, section it out and have headings and all this stuff. Don't use as much jargon. Don't use big words. Easily define your terms and common language, all this kind of stuff, right? We all want this really easy way of interacting with information, but sometimes that easy interaction with information does harm. And so what happens if we think and we affirmatively or, or generously think about friction? What can it do for us? And that's, that's kind of what we want to do. We wanted to basically do a meditation on friction through these devices and also the concepts as well. In terms of the devices and why we were thinking about those, why they were important for us, is that they were like a physical manifestation of this idea of friction that we wanted to talk about. So they were really helpful in helping us think through the ideas themselves. Now, we would like to bring your work into today's context. So with the COVID-19 pandemic and social distancing policies, universities have had to take their instruction to online platforms, furthering the use of technology in our everyday lives. Can you apply the posthumanist perspective for today's situation and tell us how a posthumanist would view the world as it is right now? Oh, boy. Um, I think a lot of posthumanists would say, see, we're right. You know, <laughs> uh, These people who go down and like, I think it was yesterday or the day before going down to the state capitol here in Texas and protesting 
I have a right to work. I have a right to be outside. It's my choice. My body, my choice is what a lot of these signs say. That's a humanist viewpoint. I am my own distinct person in the world and I've been given unalienable rights by a creator. It's in our constitution. It's literally, it constitutes how we think of ourselves as being in the world. Whereas the post-humanist version of this is, no, I am not just my body. My body might be a medium to allow some other body to be infected. Even if I don't show any signs of being infected, my body might transmit or communicate meaning to another body without even intending to. To, to bring this kind of idea into the COVID-19, the sort of like shelter in place stuff, online learning, social distancing, I think is to affirm a lot of things that post-humanist thought has tried to think through. It's not just about technology, but it's also about biology as well. The virus comes from animals and in human contact. A, a virus is information, it's biological information. It goes from one body to another. Uh, through another body of air or water. And thinking it through a posthumanist lens means at least putting on pause for a second how a human just thinking what they can do or can't do or deciding on doing something or not doing something cannot explain what it means to be a living being in this world, regardless of technology or whatever. Technology helps us see certain things, I think. And as new technologies come in, we reconfigure who we are and how we interact with each other who becomes friends, what families look like, all this kind of stuff. Technology helps accelerate certain changes and stuff, but it's not the only thing that makes something post-human. And it's just a recognition that, you know, you don't get to choose everything and you're not aware of everything, but you're still a part of the spread of certain kinds of information in other ways. In this particular time of like distance learning and social distancing, I think post-humanist thought does a lot of good work in trying to explain why it is that we can't just choose to get it or not get it or give it or not give it. Another question here, accessibility. It's always been a big concern for students at UT since we may not all have the same connectivity, the same hardware. That's usually where the PCL or the learning center helps. And uh, many of us have complicated lives that have different schedules that compete with our ability to complete our work online. And the virus that we're going through right now has only worked to complicate that. Mm -hmm. You're teaching a class um, on access and design. How has this experience with online education influenced the way you teach this class? And how does this experience, how has it informed your understanding of your approach to accessibility? One of the things that I recognized in the last couple of years since I started teaching that class, uh, it's called uh, Access Designed. It's a class in taking digital media, uh, whether it's a podcast or a, a video essay or uh, a website itself, and making it accessible to people with varying abilities. So someone who is blind, for instance, making sure that students know how to make a website accessible for screen readers that would read off the information rather than being able to see the information. And getting people to think about the ways that certain bodies respond and react to certain kinds of media. And so that's the entire course. Since I've been teaching that course for a couple of years uh, at the graduate level and undergraduate level, it's forced me to remember and to think first about providing multiple means of access to any information I give in the class. I don't like to say that like I just deliver information. If that were the case, you could just go to a book for that. You don't need me to do that, right? But what you need me and other teachers to do is help orchestrate a, a series of progressions through which you access certain information in certain ways. 
That's what a course is. It's a, literally a course. It's a, it's a path. I'll give you an example. Two of my classes, one class was really easy to put online. I'm teaching a 321 just like this one. Not just like this one, but I'm teaching a 321 class, Principles of Rhetoric. And in that class, I'm always putting my lecture, my slides. Um, number one, I used to never have slides, but now I started doing that because students need it. And a lot of students like to see something on the screen rather than just me droning on forever or in my bad handwriting, writing on the whiteboard, having it already prepared is, is good. After having taught accessible course designs and, and design, it started making me rethink how to teach courses. So like I said, in my 321, I think I had like eight letters of accommodation from students requesting accommodation, but every single one of those requests were already pre-designed into the class. They were things like upload lecture notes, put your slides online, make them available, if you have any videos in the class, make sure they're closed captioned. It's all those kinds of things. What that means is that you have to start using Canvas to not just supplement and, and make extra, but as a central part of the course itself. Now, when, when the in-person classes were ruled out, I had to adjust certain things or amp up certain aspects of that. Like I had to start recording these videos for my students. I was already kind of prepared accidentally to do this kind of work, to move it over. In my other course, Computer Programming for Humanities Majors, total disaster, 100% total disaster. It's a, it's a course for humanity majors to, to learn how to program. And the entire course was designed around us being in a room together and like learning this stuff through problem solving. It's like, okay, here's a problem. Let's figure this out together. And was only like in-person in discussion. And the, the computer program that we're learning, programming is Python. And, and I, I made everyone use the same exact computer setup. So that way it would minimize friction and distraction and that sort of thing. So we can all have the same problems at the same time rather than everyone being on 10 different computers and having 10 different problems all at once, right? But when we had to go online, it posed a significant change in the course itself because it wasn't already accessible. So I'm still trying to get that one correct. The work I'm doing for that class is actually making me learn the content better and how to teach it better. I've decided that I'm just going to do it online because I think that's probably the proper way to do it, or at least it's a way to do it. Um, increase the number of students who could be in there, but also like just to do different things with the class. So those are the kinds of things that accessibility helps you. It's never going to get it right. It's all, you know, and we all have complicated lives, not just students, right? But so do professors and administrators and our admin staffs. Like show me someone who has a simple life and I'll show you someone who's really rich. Okay. Well, that's really good insight. That's interesting about, you know, your roadblocks and in the class that's maybe not so easy to teach online, but how that might make your class better in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, we really thank you for your time and not only helping us with this podcast, but also like providing us information into not only your writings, but showcasing your knowledge of philosophical concepts and humanist ideas. And we hope you have um, somewhat of a safe quarantine, enjoyable quarantine. And, <laughs> Just thanks again from all the group for helping out this podcast. Thanks for reading the essay, spending some time with it, and asking some really good questions. It was really a pleasure being here. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Casey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, all. Thank you to Zoom for making this podcast possible in these circumstances. Thank you to rhetoric professor Mark Longacre for helping facilitate the recording of this podcast and to Brandon, Lindsay, Hannah, and Jake for their questions. Thank you to Ainsley for editing this podcast. And of course, thank you to our guest, Professor Casey Boyle, for his time and insightful responses. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you for tuning in.